Hi, I'm Karen Farbridge. Welcome to Promethea Rising, a podcast promoting energy conscious communities. Join me as I talk with good people solving a wicked global problem. I'm pleased to introduce my guest for this episode of Promethea Rising. Rob Kerr has spent his entire career in the energy world, working in many sectors. He has focused primarily on supporting the role of local governments and communities in energy planning and climate action, and continues to advise them through his Canadian consultancy based in Guelph, Ontario. His diverse experience has led to a more inclusive view on climate change and the energy transition. Talking about climate change and energy efficiency is often, even to this day, seen as sort of a special interest issue. That there's only certain people who worry about that and some people don't. And there's a lot of division around it, especially on climate, I think more so than energy. But, and that, I despair at that, why that happens. And I think the missing ingredient has been talking about the economy. I've had the good fortune to work with Rob on several projects over the years. And I have always been fascinated by how Rob's career path tells the story of the rise of energy conscious communities in Canada. So that's a great place to start. Welcome, Rob. Why don't you begin by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and the interesting path you have taken during your career? Thanks, Karen. It all began when I graduated or I was studying at Trent University in Peterborough um, in the late 70s when the world was experiencing its first energy crisis, if we could call it that, with the oil shortage. And it was informing a huge amount of public discussion in in the media. And it it informed me too. I was studying physics and environmental resource science at the time. And it kind of helped me focus where I wanted to go with my career. So uh, I graduated in 1979 and immediately joined a small solar company. At the time, Governments were trying to stimulate activity to support energy efficiency and a transition to renewables. Uh, so that sort of set me on the course that I've more or less stayed on. I've, I left there and uh, spent some time with the Ministry of Energy in Ontario on a solar demonstration program and then went to work for a large multinational, Honeywell. I was a technical assistant to the marketing and sales force of building services of Honeywell, who was starting to look at energy efficiency and energy performance as part of their value proposition. So when I left Honeywell, I jumped to an energy performance company based out of Quebec called Econel Air. I inherited five municipal clients. So that's where I really learned uh, a lot about municipalities or started to. And there's some observations that I made at the time, and I've certainly reflected on many times since from that period is the, the offer to them was to have the company take over their energy expenditures and be given freedom to do retrofits and other activities that reduced energy consumption. And the company would take a piece of that, those savings as part of their, their revenue. So municipalities liked it because it really guaranteed their energy costs going forward. But municipalities, you know, really didn't know much about energy management. They, there was very few corporate energy managers working within municipalities at the time. So this service was really well received and it really didn't require any concern or any engagement from the staff of municipalities. So it was sort of handed over to somebody else. But that was also the time when municipalities were starting to hire energy managers. There were government programs that supported 
the creation of those positions and many of those positions are still in place today. And in fact, I left that company to join one of my clients, the city of Mississauga, and I was their corporate energy manager then. And so what that really says is municipalities were starting to wake up, I think, and see energy management as a core business for them, starting with their own corporate energy expenditures to run their, their operations, their arenas, their libraries, et cetera, their fleets, their vehicles. And municipalities were starting to really take on capacity to manage their own energy. So I went to work for a municipality and really learned probably a key thing, a key takeaway from that was the cost of energy to run a municipality for the taxpayers is probably the highest aggregated variable expense and subject to inflationary pressures. And always, always a challenge at budget time every year to accommodate increasing costs every year that would sort of loop back to increasing activities around energy efficiency. So we see municipalities now today, uh, speaking of Ontario, but I could say across Canada and even North America, most municipalities have pretty robust energy management programs. And there's a whole network of professionals that work within that space. And it was at Mississauga where I had quite a change in my career track, where I became aware of an organization called ICLE, which is an acronym for the International Council for Local Environmental Initiatives, which was a network, global network of cities that was aimed at sustainability. So I jumped into uh, the world of advocacy and promotion and best practice exchange. So sort of from the front lines, working for a city all the way to a global view to cities. And So what motivated <clears throat> LEAP um, and that big change in your career path? I, I found it very exciting. It was global. It was very, very interesting. I traveled the world in my 10 plus years working at ICLEI, meeting staff and leaders from other communities across the world. And so what time was this? That was in the mid-90s. So there was a lot happening globally at that time as well. Yes. Well, and that's where the excitement came from, Karen. The Rio Earth Summit had occurred in 1992. In Rio, a couple of things happened there that I, I, lear I learned about and the things that attracted me to ICLEI is that local governments, for the very first time at the global level through the UN process, local governments were recognized as a, as a partner. Also, Rio launched a number of conventions. The most well-known one is the Climate Convention. So I was aware of that uh, and ICLEI's role in advocating for local governments in solving global challenges. Mississauga was a member of ICLEI and I started learning about climate change, the threats it brought to, to local governments and the challenges and the fact that municipalities have purview over 50% of our emissions profile in Canada and, and most countries around the world as well. So aggregating municipal action, local action was really going to be key to the solution and that remains a truth, very much a truth to this day. So I found myself at ICLEI and not too long after I was in Kyoto, which was the third annual conference of the parties. Also, it was an interesting time for the Canadian government who had a very wide open delegation of which ICLEI was a member. So attended the Canadian delegation meetings every day and Canada was quite a leader in that process and brought home the message that ICLEI was bringing to that particular meeting and the other advocacy activities is that local governments need to be involved in federal level action, state level action, 
be part of the solution. And that legacy continues to this day through the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, who has a very robust program supporting municipalities to reduce their emissions and increase their energy efficiency. In fact, it's bigger than ever. And all of that was spawned in Kyoto. What right. was it like being there? Give us any view on the machinations that went on. Well, I can. I can give. It was. It was a fascinating thing. I was just wide-eyed the whole time. Of course, I was much younger and I was much fresher to the to the issue. The UN, starting in 1992, had opened up their processes to to the NGO sector and civil society as a whole. The UN tradition up to that time did not. It was state governments. They were the members, and they were the ones that convened and discussed the big global issues. And that had changed, mostly under the leadership of a Canadian, Maurice Strong, who was actually chaired the Rio Conference in 92. So in Kyoto, there's a great deal of activity on the streets. All of the NGOs from around the world convened on Kyoto, and they were protesting and demonstrating in the streets. And it was very active. So walking between the hotel and the convention center, you get to walk through the city and, and see all of this, this advocacy and protest activity going on. It was very exciting. And it was also quite an honor to be part of ICLEI because ICLEI did have official UN, continues to this day to have official UN recognition as representing local governments. So we would convene all our members and develop communiques and insert them directly into the UN process. And essentially the message was local governments need to be included in global efforts to, to attack and, and deal with climate change. So you spent 10 years at ICLEI. Where did you go after that? I spent time at two startups and also a great deal of learning. So, you know, I referred to the market for energy efficiency products and services earlier that continued to grow uh, with, with uh, services and products and innovation and technology continuing to evolve that really drives energy efficiency and low carbon solutions. I popped over to another startup that was supporting large corporations and their corporate suite policy development. And they were great learnings to me about what it takes to start a company. And that led me to, um, to where I spent another 11 years. So a big chunk of my career was with the city of Guelph, the opportunity for uh, managing and, and implementing a community energy plan was offered to me. And, and of course that uh, was a profound experience and, and quite, a, quite a challenge from where I'd spent you know, a big chunk of time working at ICLEI, where you're at a global level, you're looking at global challenges, you're trying to aggregate municipalities collectively towards those challenge, to going right down to the front lines to one of those municipalities that's, that's working hard to actually implement uh, a very ambitious plan. Guelph was quite a leader at the time. They were one of the few cities in Canada at the time of uh, developing a community energy plan, which would have been um, 2007. Now I'm an independent uh, consultant. I'm working collaboratively with a number of different teams supporting cities across Canada to continue to move from the planning to implementation phase, which I would sort of describe as sort of the forefront of the movement where cities are now struggling to try and take planning and implement. So communities have been such a theme through your career. Why do you think that is? I would say that when you're working at the global level, as exciting it can, as it can be, um, it's not always easy to see your progress. You're throwing a lot of uh, stuff out there to the world and you don't always see the collective impact. 
Um, that would be one thing that I would say I've thought about a lot in reflection. And there's reason for despair, actually, when you're there, because when you do look at global emissions that we see reports on from the IPCCC, it's quite despairing sometimes that we're not seeing global improvements in emissions. When you're working locally, you can. There's cause and effect that's much easier to follow. The other part is a bit more personal, and that is um, community is, is not just a convenient word. I mean, we talk about municipalities as corporations, but really they are stakeholders in their own communities. And so the ability to work with the community, in my case, in Guelph, the one I grew up in, has a great deal of personal appeal. And it's, it's been quite rewarding that way to really see how energy is woven into the fabric and culture of, of any community, more importantly, my community. As I listen to the telling of your career path, there have been many ups and downs in interest, either in the energy transition or climate action. That must have been challenging. There was a wave of interest after the energy crisis in the 1970s, and then that fell off. Then during the 1990s, you described a great deal of interest in climate change, both globally and locally. But that too fell off, although fortunately is now back on as a key issue. Even at the community level, we have both seen interest wax and wane. Why do you think that is? Hmm. I, I would agree with your observation. It does wax and wane. It creates a lot of challenge for, for those trying to understand why. And I'm very interested in understanding the answer to it, of course, when we're working with municipalities who are attempting to implement ambitious plans, understanding that is very, very important. So I could sort of give you a few thoughts on that that have gelled for me. I think one of them is, um, is kind of an interesting one to me and it's culture. I've done work in Europe and I've always enjoyed chatting informally with European colleagues about, about the cultural view to energy concerns and climate concerns. And there's quite a difference and it's, when you look at Europe and, and North America, where Europeans are, I don't want to oversimplify this, but are more easily driven to come together around common challenges and issues and their culture and history informs that. Here in North America, we're a relatively new culture, you know, two, 300 years old. And I think we use, uh, ener we, we think of energy uh, and freedom interchangeably. When you look at the building of our society and very cheap and easily affordable energy systems that were developed, we did not start a culture of uh, conservation at all. We were trying now to think about one, but there was sort of abundant energy to grow our society. And I still think that informs our culture today. The other is, is a sort of open question. And when we talk about levels of government in Canada, we have three, you know, federal, provincial, and local. There's an ongoing debate to this day about whose responsibility is it to, to be concerned about the supply of our energy and delivery of it to our communities in an efficient way and a non-damaging way to the environment. I think if you ask the average person who they think is responsible for that concern, it's not really, really clear. And that's really, I think, where the word transition comes in. We, we sometimes talk about the energy transition as being a technical discussion terms of technology, but it's not. There's more to it than that. Where municipalities are now really just starting to take on concerns around energy where traditionally they have not. The province and provinces in Canada have taken care of energy. So, you know, they build 
build the generation and distribution systems and deliver it at a reasonable cost to our communities. And you know, municipalities as governments have never had to worry about it too much. Now, when we're seeing concerns about climate change and carbon-based energy supply and transitioning to low carbon and efficient systems, which generally describes what a community energy plan aims to do, the local benefit is quite profound. And that's really the forefront of why municipalities are embracing it because they see the local benefit of transitioning their energy systems. How well positioned do you think Canadian municipalities are to benefit? Yeah, I, I would say not well prepared. Now, it's, it's always risky to make generalizations about all municipalities. There are exceptions. But I think it may be better framed as it's, it's a valid discussion in communities and um, in municipalities and amongst their leadership about how they embrace this or they should they. And so I think when you see municipalities taking leadership roles, and it's like a horse race, there's always different municipalities on the forefront because leadership changes through election cycles. Um, you'll have leadership to say, absolutely, we need to embrace this concern, that we need to take strong purview over energy. We need to embrace it as a challenge. We need to change our infrastructure and we need to reap the local benefits that come from that. But some would say, no, this is not our business. The province will take care of this. I, I'm somewhat sympathetic to, to that. And this is really, to me, the forefront of understanding how we talk about community energy and the energy transition. Municipalities are challenged in a lot of ways. I mean, they have a limited rate base uh, or a tax base, I'm sorry. And taking on big honking new challenges can really put pressure on that. So then you have a conversation with your community about taxes and what taxes are for. So we see communities sometimes struggling with that challenge. Uh, and this is where we look to other levels of government for support and it's there. And that also waxes and wanes. We have a provincial government in Ontario that doesn't put a lot of policy energy behind the transition of our energy systems. The previous government did, so it's quite a radical change. So we get into complexities around governance here where municipalities may want to embrace the challenge, understand the local benefit, but they don't have the entire freedoms to do so, which is actually a constitutionally founded issue is that municipalities are creatures of their provincial governments and rely on them for transfer payments and policy support and legislative tools, et cetera. So that's something that's transitioning as well. So that municipalities have the freedom and bandwidth, maybe if you will, or the running room to actually do something locally to transition their energy systems. Are there any um, communities, municipalities that you might point to that you feel are getting on the right on the path and are perhaps transcending the election cycles so that their role in energy is becoming much more internalized as a, a core local responsibility? Answering that question is a difficult one because by what are we measuring? this movement or, or how does one measure a city that's moving towards a transitioned energy economy or a more sustainable uh, structure 
often is described sort of at the project level. So sometimes there's very large projects that cities engage in or activities that engage in that put them in the, in the limelight and have them being described as leaders. It's a much longer game than that. So uh, that list changes. But I would say, you know, the, large, the larger cities in Canada and, and in North America broadly are living the reality of unsustainable growth unsustainable transportation systems, challenging energy distribution systems, rapidly increasing energy costs uh, for all sectors in their communities. So they are, they're the ones that I think are shining a brighter light on the challenge and working towards a solution, mostly because they have to. And you know, this is an interesting thing to observe is that at a certain scale, the unsustainability of, of certain structures and systems within cities is visibly not sustainable. So, you know, you look at transportation issues in Toronto, for example, that enjoys one of the world's, uh, not enjoys, but has the, the infamy of one of the world's most gridlocked cities. And the impact on the economy there is profound. So leaders of the city are not looking at it as a special interest issue to have low carbon, more energy efficient systems, they see it as an impact on their economy. So I want to go back to your comment about, you know, how do we measure progress? And mm -hmm. you recently presented at the Association of Energy Engineers, and you, know, you might expect a conference like that to be very technical, but you were there to talk about economic development. And I know it's been a, a keen interest of yours as to how do you measure the economic development benefit opportunity of community energy planning and the energy transition at a community level. And I know you've recently been doing some research in New Brunswick with respect to this. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that and what are some of the themes emerging from both your experience, but yeah. also more recently your research on this. Uh, yeah, I would say that's the forefront of my work right now, but it, it has its threads going way back to even Kyoto, where just the kind of observation that I was thinking about as I experienced it was kind of questions in my mind is like why are we talking about climate change when this is mostly about energy or can the world get their head around the issue of CO2 and other greenhouse gases in our atmosphere as an issue and understand it so that goes way back and that you know that's an open question that that remains to this day is setting aside how we measure cities i would just rephrase that to answer your question is how do we even talk about this and i would say just anecdotally talking about climate change and energy efficiency is often even to this day seen as sort of a special interest issue that there's only certain people who worry about that and some people don't and there's a lot of division around it, especially on climate, I think more so than energy. But, and that, I despair at that, why that happens. And I think sort of looping back, the missing ingredient has been talking about the economy, of which everybody is part. So often talk about the economy as the big tent issue. And why haven't we talked about that? The, I mean, the economic reality of not transitioning to a low carbon economy is well researched. There's good information on that. The opportunity for products and services and the innovation that's changed the way energy is produced, distributed and delivered 
and used has radically changed. And so the economic opportunity of transitioning energy systems and moreover the local opportunity is quite profound. And I believe that the conversations that are happening in communities across the country and across North America could benefit greatly by transitioning to that discussion as opposed to, although the evidence is very clear about climate change and its potential impact, I think people sometimes struggle to kind of personalize it, to understand yeah. what it means to them. They're well-intentioned, I think they want to. I'm not, suggest, I'm not making commentary about my position on the issue. I, I just, the, the conversation, the understanding, the collective actions towards these goals struggle when you're talking about climate change struggle much less so when you're talking about economy. So I'm not switching priorities when I say this or changing the focus of the conversation. I'm just talking about one that more individuals can see themselves as part of. So that's a concept that uh, has been bubbling in my mind for a long time, but I've seen evidence in recent years, particularly where it is true. Uh, that everyone can understand what economy means. And I think as an aside here, just an observation, kind of an armchair psychologist, I suppose, saying this, but talking about the economy, you know, early advocacy messaging has major actors in our economy as being the bad guys, the, the one that have taken us to this problematic situation we have around climate change. And really that's sort of led to moving the conversation away from the economy, companies and, and businesses in that economy as not part of the conversation. And a lot of the conversation has been amongst advocates that have promoted governments, that governments need to act on this. And while it's arguable that they should, who are the actors in the economy that actually implement this transition we're talking about? So part of the pathway to energy, more energy conscious communities is, is that engagement in that economic conversation and the engagement of, of the stakeholders who, who really drive that part of our community life. Exactly. So that, you know, this notion that governments are the ones that have to solve the problem has led to some blind alleys, really, in conversation. And, and one of the examples that we see with local governments that are trying to get their head around this big issue will often say, we as a local government can't afford to address this problem. We don't have the money. Our taxpayers won't accept huge tax increases to challenge this problem. And that's a misdirected conclusion in my view is that the government's job when it comes to its relationship with the economy is to either stop economic activity that they don't like or stimulate activity that they do like and get out of the way. There's many examples in many economic sectors where that's the case. And the big one that's often used is subsidies for our oil and gas industry remain to be quite strong in Canada. And that government subsidies for renewables, conservation technologies could be much higher. That's the kind of discussion that one should have with governments around how they want to guide their economies. Well, that's probably a, a great place to conclude our conversation. We're coming to the end now. The whole goal of this podcast is to talk to people who are really working to promote more energy conscious communities in Canada. And so I wanted to end by asking you 
is 30 years enough time for us to nurture and promote energy conscious communities? I'm not sure. I don't think so. However, transitions that I've been studying and doing research, you mentioned my uh, work in New Brunswick, and I'm doing lots of research on, uh, on academic studies uh, done by economists about how markets transition. So not just this one that we're talking about today, but historically how markets have transitioned. It's not linear. So there's some, sometimes there's a tipping point where things can change very quickly and very fast. Uh, so that's a possibility here. I think the thing to point out is that the market for products and services, so I'm referring to solar energy, I'm referring to district energy, uh, conservation technologies, uh, net zero buildings, they're in the billions of dollars. The private sector has made investments. There's companies and organizations that are actively looking to grow their markets. And because of the nature of what community energy plans and implementation mean is that most of that activity takes place at the community level. So municipalities can play a huge role in opening up those markets through their community energy policies. And that's not going to grow linearly. I think it'll be exponential. So if it does happen, it'll happen fast. And that might happen within a 30-year period. Municipalities across Canada, as we know in the recent climate crisis activity that's happening, is councils, and dozens of them now, have uh, committed to, in, in many cases, net zero by 2050, which is extremely ambitious, but they are to be commended for aspiring to those goals. But I'm not sure, so I'm going to sort of couch my answer for somewhere between a yes and no. So that's it, Rob. Thanks so much. Karen, I really commend you for doing this, and I, I'm really, I seriously honored to uh, to be invited. The more and more I do this work, it's just the effort to try and continue to focus a conversation is really where the work is. It's not some analytical proof that this is important, <laughs> right? It's really about communication, and uh, and so these are the vehicles that actually inspire that. So 